Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basilica, Director of the Clinical Specialists and Scientists here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting that focuses on the best practices and actionable steps that you can use in your practice to make meaningful changes towards a more equitable, diverse, and inclusive team and organization. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. One thing that I, I want us to do is just to, to think about um, the importance of understanding how race is a social construct. And so what that specifically means, you know, as Dr. Walker talked about being anti-racist and addressing health inequities and pursuing health equity, um, understanding this concept is certainly of value um, as we as we we do that, and and also understanding and addressing how systemic inequities have actually sickened racial and ethnic minority communities. And so I, I want to really reiterate this idea of of how these inequities have actually made certain groups, certain communities more sick. And we've, we've seen that in the, the background information that's been provided. So the question becomes, how do we redesign systems to be equitable for all? Certainly, if we we're able to address this question with the blink of an eye, we would hope that it, it would have been addressed by now, but it's certainly multifactorial. And we as pharmacists um, can certainly take an active role in helping to redesign systems to be equitable for all. Sir Michael Marmot stated, why treat people and send them back to the conditions that made them sick in the first place? As healthcare providers, we are, we take the oath to care for all patients. Um, our goal is to make them better, um, to, to certainly heal certain conditions, and of course, not make them sicker than they have come to us. Um, but what we are doing, if we are not addressing those social determinants of health, we are definitely treating our patients, but actually sending them out and basically reversing the effects that we are hoping to achieve. So when we think about the social determinants of health, we've certainly received that definition and we, we understand that there are a variety of factors, um, social factors that can affect one's health. But it's important for us to incorporate uh, those social determinants of health into our comprehensive medication management. So we are the medication experts and we oftentimes will take care of patients who are not controlled with their disease states. Um, they're not at goal. And um, certainly when we're, we're wanting their, them to be adherent to their medications, that may not be the case. And so we may think that it, it's due to 
decisions that are made by the patient, but certainly um, we, we do know that there are determinants or factors that we need to uncover. And so the first part of this model is really collecting and uncovering the social determinants of health. This is not a commonplace action that most pharmacists or healthcare providers do. And, and so that is really the first step, asking questions, um, really digging deep to understand what are the barriers that are contributing to the patient's uh, management of their disease states. Uh, and then obtaining that information. And, and so some pharmacists uh, may find this to actually be challenging because they don't necessarily know exactly how to ask the questions. But I think it's so important that we, um, of course, have to build the relationship with the patient. So we're not going to ask about more of the social determinants with patients that we have not built trust with. And, and so that is certainly an important step before we do collect this information. Now, the other piece to this is is certainly the the access part, linking the social determinants of health to medication problems. Um, and so, as I mentioned earlier, not necessarily feeling as if or thinking that medication problems are because of the personal decisions of the, the patient, but definitely finding ways such as, you know, if someone is living in a certain environment that exposes them to toxins, then that can be linked to potentially their uncontrolled asthma. If someone is living in an environment um, that they're undergoing uh, much stress, then that could potentially be linked to their uncontrolled hypertension. And so with this particular model, and this, this was you know, a an article that was led by Petka uh, incorporating the social determinants into the comprehensive medication model, and they really provided some insights into the field. The next part was just this planning and implementation, um, addressing the social determinants that are both related to medication problems and unrelated. And then the other part that they talked about in this particular article was, of course, documentation and use of the entire healthcare team. So once we are determining that there are factors that need to be addressed, bringing in the entire healthcare team, working as an interprofessional team. So I just really wanted to set us up for um, what we're going to talk about in uh, in the next few minutes, so that we get into the lens of really thinking about the social determinants of health, and also how we are contributing to uh, the continual cycle of health inequities and health disparities. The other important piece is to understand um, health equity. And uh, certainly, Dr. Walker provided some great definitions of, of health equity. And with this particular visual, you know, it really just showcases the difference between equality and, and equity. And, you know, equality is not enough. It's certainly, you know, due to historical and contemporary injustices, we see that minority, minoritized groups were not and still not treated equally. And so equity provides the resources that someone needs. And so we see in this particular visual that the equity part, each individual is receiving the actual resource that is needed in order for them to ride the bike successfully. Equity is removal of barriers that explicitly and implicitly disadvantage 
um, specifically oppressed groups. And it's the riddance of those policies and practices that result in these inequities and disparities. So everyone pretty much receives the individualized resources that they need to succeed. So we, we also, with equity, we take into consideration the lived experiences. And so we've learned about some of those lived experiences and perspectives of certain communities that we serve. For example, when we think about equity, certainly this idea of providing a um, community affinity groups, um, whether it's within the workplace, whether it's in um, a higher education institution, this will provide a community for individuals who have traditionally been isolated, have traditionally been marginalized, versus if we have affinity groups for everyone, that will unfortunately not address the inequities that have been so longstanding within our country. Now, additionally, so just continuing to build on this, there's this socio-ecological model of health. And this particular model has been around for a while. It's really very highly utilized in the public health arena. It consists of five levels of intervention. And so we have individual, interpersonal, organizational, community, and policy. This really has been utilized to influence behavior change to positively impact both individual and population health outcomes. And ultimately, that's what we want to do. We, we want to influence behavior change because, as I mentioned, this has been longstanding. We've seen a lot of these same inequities, same, the same health disparities um, exist, and we want to see change. And so we're going to really kind of dig deep into how, the how, and specifically what level we can address within this, this particular model. And so when we think about individual, that's, of course, our own personal duty, um, our personal biases and, and our personal responsibilities. And so we it really takes us taking um, accountability for ourselves. The next level is the interpersonal, and that's really how we interact with our patients, our peers, um, thinking about microaggressions and, you know, certainly biases, once again, how that comes about in the way that we care for our patients. Organizational is, is certainly those incremental changes that we can make within our organization. So that's within our workplace, higher education um, institutions. Community is just what it states, you know, understanding and serving the community, partnering with community organizations. And then policy is that advocacy piece. And, you know, policy and advocacy can happen on a variety of levels. Certainly we can advocate on a local level within our communities, but certainly we're, we're at an ASHP conference and there is a lot that can be done on the national level as well. So let's start off with the individual level. I want to provide you with a case study so that we can understand how 
an individual might address um, and provide certain strategies in addressing health inequities. So our case study, we have two pharmacists, um, Ed and Tracy. They've been married for 12 years. Uh, they live in a four-bedroom home in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. They have two kids. They both attend private school. Ed and Tracy, they grew up in a racially homogenous small town in southern Illinois, which is not too far from St. Louis. They both went to grad schools with no racially diverse students and uh, grade schools um, with no racially diverse students until college. Growing up, they often heard racial slurs and jokes from family members about um, the Black, Hispanic, Asian, and Muslim communities. They were also told to, told to stay out of certain neighborhoods that were occupied by racial minorities. Tracy, she attended Southern Illinois University and became friends with Lisa, a black female, but they never visited with each other outside of college. Ed and Tracy, they both went uh, to pharmacy school together and made friends with racially diverse students, but spent most of their time uh, with white friends. And, you know, now that they're pharmacists, they're practicing in certain settings, they feel that they are blind to race and they just treat everyone the same, including their patients. So I, I want us to reflect and think about in what ways can Ed and Tracy pursue anti-racism and equity on an individual level? So I just want you to take just a moment to, to think about, you know, how can these two pharmacists, um, thinking about their, their socialization, thinking about uh, the environment that they have been exposed to, how can they actually pursue anti-racism and equity on an individual level? And so I really want to highlight that we are a product of our environment. And if we have not become self-aware of how our socializations and environments affect the way that we show up to our patients, the way that we treat our patients, um, the way that we are biased towards certain individuals, then, it, then that is something that we have to come to grips with. And so that's really an important first step. And I provide this cycle of socialization, and, and this is a, a pretty well-known model. There's a cycle of socialization by Hero, and really it just tells us that, you know, our biases, our attitudes, our honest feelings are a result of our socializations throughout our life. And so when we think about Ed and Tracy, they grew up in an environment in which they were not exposed to different types of people or, or, or specifically, you know, those with physical characteristics that were different than, than them. Uh, they also, on top of the non-exposure, they were also in the environment or in spaces where they heard negative comments about individuals that they were not exposed to. And so when we think about this cycle of socialization, um, it's really targeting those messages that we hear 
from individuals that we trust, certainly our, our parents, our grandparents, the messages that we receive in our communities, that we also receive within the, the media, within our schools, both indirectly and directly. And so we can just imagine the messages that um, Ed and Tracy received indirectly and directly that negatively shaped the way they view certain individuals. And so certainly these socializations continue until we decide to disrupt them, until we decide to raise our consciousness and educate ourselves and therefore take a stand against the way that we have previously been thinking. Additionally, as I mentioned, they they definitely grew up in um, a homogenous environment, and and it sounds as if you know they have continued to have more of a homogenous circle of of network, and and that definitely plays another part. And so, if we are not exposing ourselves to different types of of individuals and learning from them, then we will fill in the blanks with those assumptions and once again continue to perpetuate our our biases. And so this is just an activity that I like to do um, with with students, with peers, to really think about how diverse is our immediate or just our our, our network of of daily living. Um, and and with this particular activity, you know, each bead it is represent, um, representative of a certain group. And, and so we, we focus in just more so on racial diversity. And I want you to, um, you know, kind of simulate this and think about, you know, what closely represents your race and you're thinking about what is your race and what's the race of your significant other the race of your closest friend, um, the neighbors that live in near your home, your doctor, your dentist, your teachers, your classmates, uh, the people in your, your social circle, the author of the last book that was read, um, you know, the, the people that were predominantly in the, the last good movie that you saw, the TV shows, the music, and really think about how diverse is your universe? And I know most times when I have actually done this particular um, activity, it is um, a shock to to recognize how oftentimes, um, whether it's intentional or not, that we tend to associate with individuals that we share commonalities with and specifically physical commonalities with. And with that, that once again, um, perpetuates our biases. Another tool that I want to share with you and is an anti-racism checklist. So Dr. Walker talked about the definition of anti-racism and certainly the importance of us pursuing anti-racism versus um, it not being enough to not be racist because this is really active. We are really thinking about the systems that are in place, not just thinking about our own individual actions. But 
there are individual actions that we can take as we move towards becoming anti-racist. And so there is a full checklist. I've just provided an abbreviated version for you to, to think about um, as you are reflecting. And so when we think about this individual level of intervention, it really takes a lot of reflection. It takes a lot of self-awareness as well. So for example, in this checklist, it says, do I continually educate myself about racism and multicultural issues? Do I recognize my own limitations in doing anti-racism work? Can I identify racism as it is happening? And at meetings, am I making sure that anti-racism is part of the discussion? So when we think about when we're in the workplace, are we making sure that we're speaking up about the importance of anti-racism? Can I strategize and work in coalition with diverse individuals to advance anti-racism work? So am I being a part of the solution? Am I supporting and validating the comments and actions of historically marginalized individuals and other allies? Am I striving to share the power that I have, whether that is due to my agency or based on my position, but striving to share that power, especially with people from historically marginalized groups? And then do I take a personal interest in the lives and welfare of individuals of different social identities? So is this just at work that I am taking care of individuals or is this a part of who I am as a healthcare provider and as a person? So these are just some things to, to reflect on as we are thinking about this individual responsibility that we have in addressing anti-racism and pursuing health equity. It's also important, you know, as we think about bias, for us to, to reflect on not just our personal reflections and identifying and acknowledging those uncomfortable feelings and thoughts, but recognize the stereotypes that you may have due to socializations. And so a really nice tool is the Harvard Implicit uh, Association Test. And it really helps us to, to think about, okay, are there there potentially some biases that I was just not aware of as it relates to certain groups, um, certain identities. It's also important for us to recognize and learn about the structural and systemic barriers that exist within our immediate network of influence within our workplace. And so that does take education. Um, it certainly does take uh, time reviewing policies and procedures utilizing experts in the field to help uncover those particular structural and systemic barriers because if we have been benefiting from those particular from those particular barriers then it's very hard for us to recognize them and and so unfortunately those that are a part of the agent group or the majority have benefited within healthcare for, for quite some time due to these particular systemic barriers. Understanding how the social determinants of health affect patients. And so I started off uh, my discussion on really uncovering the social determinants of health and tying that back to medication management. That is a very important piece as healthcare providers for us to, to certainly do. And then, you know, continuing to discover and identify our personal biases, how they show up, 
And just like we have learned those biases based on what we've been taught, what we've been exposed to, there's research that says that we can unlearn it just just the way that we have learned it. And so that that's an important piece. You know, I talk about the importance of building trust with our patients. And so that that piece of empathy and cultural humility um, as we are working towards um, this this pursuit of, of health equity is important. So cultural humility is coming to the table knowing that I, I certainly know a lot about medications, um, about healthcare, but the patient knows way more about themselves than I will ever know. And so definitely coming ready to learn from the patient and, and build their trust. Now I want to move, and that really helps to segue us into the interpersonal level. And as I mentioned, that's really that interaction with our patients and with with our peers. So we have another case. Um, Roderick Jones is a 44-year-old cisgender black male, and he has a past medical history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, and erectile dysfunction. Um, You see that he is um, obese, and his blood pressure and diabetes are both uncontrolled. He does live in um, Roxbury, Massachusetts with his father. And so just to give you a little bit of information about this area in Massachusetts, it's segregated. Um, It's one of the most segregated areas out of the 51 metropolitan cities um, in the United States. And so, you know, Boston, it actually ranks 15th as the most segregated major city. And this particular area is segregated and it's been that way for quite some time. Uh, we see that his current medications uh, um, seem to not be effective or, or getting him at goal. And there he works as um, a medical assistant. There's no physical activity outside of work, often forgets medications and struggles to, to pay bills in the car is, is in the shop. And so, you know, these additional pieces of information, such as um, struggles to pay bills, uh, the place that he lives, um, his car is currently in the shop. Those are certainly additional pieces of information related to the social determinants of health. Um, the, the top part is the, is the typical information that we may find in the patient's chart, but this additional information is, is certainly the social determinants of health. And if we don't have that additional information, we might make the assumption that this particular patient is not taking their medications appropriately, or we may pile on more medications and cause um, further challenges, side effects, and um, certainly the patient not being adherent or um, happy with with their health care. So I want us to think about you know, what social determinants of health may be affecting our patient, Mr. Jones. And so, you know, I talked about the, the, um, this particular area in Boston. And so I have to share that with it being uh, segregated, the housing particular, the, the housing state in this particular area is pretty poor. In this particular area, the the Reserve, the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, they reported that the average white household's wealth was about 247,000 and compared that to the average black household's wealth was $8. And so that's a big difference. You know, we have 
our housing system to point to. And that's been historical and that continues to exist today. And so just this lack of wealth has played a a part, unfortunately, in the patient struggling to pay their bills, their education, being able to get maybe a, a more lucrative paying job. And so this limited wealth, employment, the lack of transportation, also, you know, living in an under-resourced neighborhood. So, you know, additionally, this particular patient lives in an area that there's a pharmacy desert and the patient is experiencing on a consistent basis racial trauma. And so these are additional factors that are playing an important part in their their healthcare and the their health outcomes specifically. So as I, I talk about uncovering the social determinants of health, this is a really nice tool that has been developed. It's the Family Physicians, the American Association of Family Physicians, and it's a social needs screening tool. You know, if if you don't necessarily know what to specifically ask when we're trying to uncover those those particular social determinants of health. This is a nice screening tool. It helps us to uncover if there are some food insecurities and really think about, you know, how might this affect the patient's health? And so if someone is unable to have access to healthy foods, if they're unable to have reliable transportation to to go to their pharmacy to pick up their prescriptions on time, to come to their, their appointments, then, then those particular things will definitely play a part. Certainly childcare, that has, we, we've certainly been able to uncover that disparity during this COVID era um, with vaccination. So, you know, if, if um, a parent is unable to have childcare uh, and, and that will be a barrier to, to them coming to their appointments, getting their vaccines. Um, so these are all particular reasons that could contribute to someone's health outcomes. And this is a, a screening tool that we have permission for the advancement of health equity. So just to kind of bring this all full circle, um, you know, these strategies to promote anti-racism and health equity when when caring for minoritized patients, you know, I've talked a lot about the social determinants of health. Um, So, you know, educating our students and our residents on the social determinants of health. This is an area, you know, there's been some research that looked to see how consistent we've been in educating our learners. And we found that we've been very inconsistent in tying these inequities to the social determinants of health. And so this is a very important part that we can play as as healthcare providers, as it relates to our learners and making sure that they are aware of how to address the social determinants of health. The other thing to think about is taking a, a stance of what's what happened to this patient versus what's wrong with them. And you know, I talk about when, when we say what's wrong with the patient, that gives us a lens of they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing. But instead of what happened, that's more of a trauma-informed lens. It helps us to really reflect on how these inequities, how these systemic barriers have contributed to the place that they're in and the 
the specific structural barriers and how they have definitely promoted health inequities. We've definitely talked about checking biases, building a trusting relationship with patients, assessing clinical practices as well. There are um, a number of studies that have seen the differences in the way that we make clinical recommendations. And really that's tied back to those unknown biases. So we may be thinking that we're treating all of our patients the same, but there's evidence that certain individuals are receiving greater care. They are receiving procedural recommendations or referrals that other individuals are not. And we see these differences specifically in our minoritized groups. And then another strategy is the utilization of the the social needs screening tool. And once we've uncovered those particular needs, addressing them. And so we may think as pharmacists, well, I'm not equipped to, to address some of these social needs. And that's why it It's so important for us to utilize our colleagues, our interprofessional colleagues, and so social workers, um, case managers, um, and and others that can help to address these particular social needs. But we can certainly play a part in helping to uncover them and tying them back to medication management. Now, let's take um, some time to talk about you know, strategies on the organizational level. And you you might find that some of these strategies that I've already talked about, they tend to overlap. So the individual, the interpersonal level, and now the organizational level. And so I've, I've talked a little bit about some ideas regarding organization, but we'll, we'll dig into another case study. So we have organization A is made up of diverse individuals throughout, except in their executive leadership positions. And so this includes their board of directors. The organization serves a diverse community and prides itself in having diversity, equity, and inclusion within their mission, their vision, and their values. And so it's written within their different documents. However, the minoritized employees feel tolerated and they experience consistent bias that makes the workplace not enjoyable. Minority patients often request to be seen by minority healthcare providers, and these same minority healthcare providers frequently serve on multiple committees. And this typically will result in burnout. And I can't tell you how often I have I've, I've talked to colleagues, um, specifically racial minoritized colleagues, that are experiencing uh, this burnout. Non-minority employees at this particular organization feel comfortable and they feel valued. So that was Organization A. So let's talk about Organization B. Organization B is made up of diverse individuals throughout and it includes their leadership positions. The organization has made intentional efforts to hire and promote traditionally marginalized groups and they have implemented a formal and they've implemented formal with kind of a formal mentorship with improved health outcomes. DEI are included in their mission, vision, values, but also their strategic plan and metric dashboard. Non-minority employees are educating themselves and growing in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
inequitable and non-inclusive policies and procedures are updated accordingly. Employee and patient satisfaction surveys are above average and are improving. So I want us to, to think about what are the differences between organizations A and B. Certainly we see, as, um, as I, I, I like to say, we see organization B is walking the walk. They're just not talking the talk. So it's not just about uh, what's written in their mission, their vision, and their, their values, but they are actually putting this into action. And we see the fruits of their labor as it relates to the representation of um, the organization. We also see that not just um, it's not just the responsibility of certain groups, but everyone on board is, is taking accountability for educating themselves and growing in this particular area. We also see the measure of DEI. And I think that's so important because if we don't measure, then I feel that, you know, it doesn't matter. Oftentimes, if we're not measuring something and, and, and putting teeth to it, then it may not necessarily matter as much. We're just going through the motions. And so this is Organization B is definitely an organization that has taken action. They have specific strategies in place um, that are, that's creating a more equitable and inclusive environment. Um, and the other important piece about Organization B is that they are looking at their policies and procedures. And so that's an, another important organizational strategy when we think about addressing inequities, and certainly these structural and systemic barriers. Now, another example, I know there's, there's certainly been a number of resources, especially articles recently, that have talked about uh, these clinical algorithms. And so when we think about on an organizational level, um, most, most of us are uh, clinical pharmacists working in a healthcare organization. And we're utilizing a lot of these clinical algorithms or clinical tools. And so another way that we can address these inequities on the organizational level is for us to look at um, and address these clinical algorithms. And one that in particular, um, you know, we, we've heard most recently about is the, um, the GFR. So um, we know that the GFR, the glomerular filtration rate, it it has an estimate specifically for black patients and for non-black patients. But, but what we see is there is an equity concern. You know, if, if we utilize this estimated GFR specifically for black patients, if it's adjusted, then these patients might actually experience delayed referral to specialists. They also may have delayed listing for kidney transplantation. Uh, so, so these are equity concerns, and there are other tools that I've listed here specifically for cardiology, endocrinology, and our pulmonary PFT functions, um, our pulmonary function test. So we really want to be mindful when we are utilizing these race-based clinical algorithms. If there are equity concerns, let's uncover them, and let's think about is it really needed? Do we have enough evidence? 
uh, let's go back to the drawing board and and really research. Um, is there enough evidence for us to to utilize these particular um, algorithms? Additionally, on the organizational level, um, there is another tool uh, that I, I like to provide, and it's the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Spectrum Assessment. And so this is an institutional and organizational metric assessment tool. And so as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's important for us to, to measure, um, because if we don't have a goal that we are trying to achieve, uh, then oftentimes our impact is very minimal. And I, I think that's been a part of the, the reason why we have continued to see the same health inequities. For one, we haven't addressed them on these multiple levels that I'm providing. And we also have not put teeth to it and measured it. So this particular spectrum, it, it really it, it has 12 DEI dimensions that are measured, and it's on a five-point scale. So I really would encourage you to, to take a look at that particular assessment and utilize it for your own organization. Now, as we wrap up, these organizational strategies to pursue anti-racism and equity, um, I've listed a number of them here, and I've gone over some of them as well. So certainly this uh, collection of, of data to identify gaps with, with metric tracking is important. Um, I've talked about these policies and practices, really consistently reviewing them to see the, if there are inequities that exist and updating them accordingly getting feedback from your employees and patients to, um, to really hear from them on their satisfaction. Making sure that we see representation, offering mentorship and affinity groups, so creating the space for individuals that have traditionally been marginalized and isolated, uh, intentionally valuing uh, these historically marginalized groups, and then assessing outcomes and the utilization of race-based clinical tools. So some key takeaways that I want to share with you is that health disparities that result in poor outcomes for, for people of color exist because of structural and systemic racism. You know, these disparities exist in pharmacotherapeutic outcomes, and we've been um, provided with a number of examples. To eliminate race-based health disparities, we as pharmacists must be active and involved in anti-racist actions that eliminate barriers to quality care. Pharmacists can promote anti-racism and health equity at various levels. So I've shared the individual level, the interpersonal, organizational, community, and policy level. I've provided you with a number of assessment tools as you are addressing those specific levels. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode. For more resources on incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion into your practice, visit ashb.org backslash DEI. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 Major Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Vasilika from ASHB Official and thanks for listening in. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.